right, church family, you know the routine, right? Open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18. That'll be the passage that we're looking at this morning, and you will find it a lot easier if you have it open in front of you. So if you made it to church this morning without a Bible, you can just reach under the chair in front of you and grab one and turn to 1 Samuel 18. If you're using the Pew Bible, uh, you're going to be around page 241. Uh, I'll give you a moment to turn there. We're tracking through the life of King David, and so far, we have seen the rise of David moving from shepherd boy out in the fields, least likely out of seven or eight brothers, including him, to the throne of Israel. We saw two weeks ago David's anointing in secret by the prophet Samuel. Last week, we witnessed his public triumph over Goliath. David will go on to win countless battles and to win over the hearts of Israel and Judah. And as you're tracking along in this story, in this account so far, you might be thinking that all is going well and good. But we're going to see that it's a long road that takes us to the place that God has for us. Now listen, you know that that's true in your own life, right? At some point in your life, you got saved, you repented, you came to the Lord. And yet it's still some 80 years, 60 years, whatever the Lord grants you, of grind before your faith becomes sight and God brings you to your final reward. It's a long road ahead of you. Um, it, it, it's a long road ahead for David. Because he encounters what we would currently call in our modern speak, tall poppy syndrome. Are you familiar with tall poppy syndrome? It's the idea that if there's an entire field filled with poppies, um, all of the poppies get left alone except for the one that pops up too high. It's part of human nature. Whenever we see one person that rises up too fast or too quickly among their peers, we look for ways to chop them down or to knock them off or to put them in their place, cut them down to size. You've heard terminologies like that. If you want to see this in action, look at any television show, any of these reality TV shows like Survivor or any of these where peers vote on others to like throw them out of the house or throw them off the island. It's always the guys that come out of the gate too strong that get voted off first, Right? They sort of show that they're too capable and too strong, and off they go. It's human nature. That's what's about to happen to David. We will see that Saul is jealous and insecure in his leadership as king. And again, this is just a side note. This is not a huge preachable point. But it's a side note for anyone who leads groups in any fashion. Don't be like Saul. Embrace and promote the successes of the people around you, and you will find that that is only to your strength. But again, I want you to see in this account of David and Saul, Saul being insecure and bringing his insecurities to bear on David, that there's something more than natural consequences that are taking place here. There's something more than just typical human behavior. In fact, it's the outworking of the fact that God has rejected Saul as king of Israel. 
when we've been reading through these chapters, we've seen very clearly that the Spirit of the Lord has departed from Saul. And that a harmful spirit from the Lord is tormenting Saul. Notice that God's wrath being visited upon Saul is more than just the passive removal of his spirit. It's the active bringing to bear of a harmful spirit from the Lord God. Well, Saul's insecurities will be his demise. That's what's ultimately going to happen. But in the meantime, Saul's insecurities being played out will place David in peril. And so David, even at this early stage, he needs the Lord God. And the Lord has provided David with a friend. You see, ultimately, it will be the Lord God that protects and spares David. But we're going to see in these next couple of chapters that the means that the Lord God uses to protect and to spare David is actually through the provision of this good friend named Jonathan. The first thing that I want us to consider this morning, if you are a Christian man or woman and you find yourself in the bind like David, living under injustice or malevolence from another person, you need the Lord, and you need a good friend. Now, friendship is something that over the years has become far more dear and cherished to me. I don't know about you. When I was a little kid, I just sort of presumed the friendships that I had. But the older I get, the more I'm aware of them, and I'm grateful for them, and I want to foster them and, and thank God for them. And so when I think about friendships in my own life or friendships for Christians, I think it's important that we as Christian men and women foster at least two different types of friendships intentionally. The first is friendships that we have with other Christians. Why scripture refers to that as fellowship, right? When you find yourself in a bind as a Christian man or woman, you need the friendship and fellowship of other Christians. People that are going to come up to you and remind you of the gospel. In your time of need, they will be there to not just be a shoulder to cry on, but actually as Christian brothers and sisters, as Christian friends, they will bring you back to Jesus. Friends, it's important that you have Christian friends. That's the whole idea of the church. It's also important as Christians, though, that we do not become like a closed society. If you take stock of your life right now, how many of your friends are Christians? Be thankful for that, for that fellowship. But how many of your friends are non-believers? See, that's critically important for Christian men and women as well. That's why Scripture says that we as Christians ought to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Well, if you didn't have non-Christian friends, there'd be no one asking. And so as we begin to think about friendship from a Christian perspective, I want to start there. It's critically important, Christian man or woman, that you have both Christian friends 
and non-Christian friends. Listen, as Christians, by the very act of cherishing and embracing and pressing into friendship, we are already countercultural. We live in a world where friending has become a lost art. I, I was thinking about this, and I think it's a, it's, it's a truth that is evidenced particularly and uniquely in the two different sexes, okay, men and women. Now, in both male friendships and female friendships, there are certainly good examples. But I want us just to consider some of the pitfalls in those for a moment. Those male friendships or female friendships at their worst. Well, the, the corruption of female friendships with one another, I think, manifests itself in competition. It's one of the ways that female friendships fall apart, and it happens even in the church. It's sort of a, a, a quip or a truism, right? Um, men say mean things to each other and don't mean it. Women say nice things to each other and don't mean it. I mean, sometimes, and I realize I'm typifying the worst, but don't worry, I'm going to do it to men in a moment, too. Christian woman... Reject the secular narrative that you are in competition with other women and embrace that friendship as a gift from God. All right, men. Oftentimes, men have problems in their male-to-male friendships. And I think one of the reasons is that if you press in too close to another man, sometimes you are accused of homoeroticism. Okay, that's that's the, the charge that's brought to bear on men who are good friends. In fact, it's a charge that was brought to bear on this passage as well. You know, some modern so-called Bible interpreters with their own agenda come to this passage and they say, well, clearly David and Jonathan, they must have been like friends, if you know what I mean. And th- these interpreters are like, projecting their own image and their own corrupt idea of friendship onto this deep and profound male-to-male, man-to-man friendship. The problem is that we have over-sexualized everything. And so even when it comes to male-to-male, man-to-man friendships, we have forfeited a robust framework for that kind of love that two men can have for one another. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of David was knit. Sorry, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Well, I have seen this happen in my own life as well. I have a lot of acquaintances, but I have a couple of male friends, men that I love. God has blessed me with them. And I can tell you these handful of men that are in my life that I love, 
I can say with Scripture that Jonathan says of David, I love them as my own soul. But I've experienced the secular narrative push against that. There are times where I hear jokes and jibes from the peanut gallery about male friendships that I cherish. They'll say things like, oh, are you going out for wings with your boyfriend? Are you golfing with your boyfriend? What's going on? Why does that happen? Well, I'm not sure what the intended outcome is, but the result of that kind of degradation is to rob men of flourishing companionship. To isolate, to demean, to emasculate. And you know, that is exactly the desired outcome of the enemy of your soul. Satan wants to prevent you, Christian man, from enjoying a robust friendship with other men so that you're isolated, demeaned, and emasculated. I was watching a nature documentary the other day, and it, they tracked these water buffalo, and these water buffalo would find a, a little you know, repository of a lake or something where they could go and drink, and they would descend upon that only to discover that there were lions lying in wait for them. Have you ever seen this sort of thing on documentaries? And the lions would charge out from under some scrub or something, and the water buffalo would take off and start running as a pack and as a herd. And if one water buffalo got separated from the pack, from the herd, if that one water buffalo was isolated, what would happen? The lions would devour them. But if the herd could hold together, if there were deep friendships in the herd, okay, to use the analogy, if the, if the water buffalo were not isolated from one another, I watched the entire herd turn on those lions and give them the horns. Well, you know, Scripture tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5 that as Christians, we have an enemy of our soul who is like a roaring lion. He's seeking whom he may devour. And one of the techniques that he uses is to rob us of our friendships so that we would be alone and isolated and vulnerable. St. George's, and men in particular, because we're looking at the friendship of David and Jonathan this morning, Reject this secular narrative that gives you only two options as it relates to male friendships. Either you must be a lone ranger who had a feeling one time and decided you didn't like it, or you must be some sort of effeminized homoerotic person whose male friendships are actually just sexual. Instead, reclaim the healthy. Press into your male friendships. Find a friend and be a friend. If you consider your life, who have been your friends? Well, let's take another approach to this. You think about who have been your friends. What makes for a good friend? 
I'd suggest that there are at least two things that are essential to every good friendship. The one is that good friendships are marked by encouragement. And the, the second thing is, good friends and good friendships are marked by rebuke. Now, when I think about one of my very best friends, um, he embodied both of those for me over the years. I'll just tell you two quick stories. The first one is, uh, about 12 years ago, when my first wife, Rhonda, died very suddenly of a brain tumor, and Matthew was seven years old, I was 35, and I thought my life was over. I went and visited my friend. We were sitting in his basement, and, um, and he was just being a good friend. And I remember saying to him, I don't know what I'm going to do. I really don't know what I'm going to do. And he pointed his finger at me and he said, I'll tell you what you're going to do. He said, you're going to go home and you're going to sell your house and you and Matthew are going to move in with us and we're going to take care of you guys. Now, I never took him up on that. But what a friend. See, he's a good friend who encouraged me at a moment when I really needed it. This same friend, several years later, I was actually being a really bad friend towards him. Every time that we would make plans to go somewhere or do something, I would back out at the last minute. I didn't even realize I was doing it. And he called me late one night, and he laid into me and ripped a strip off me. He rebuked me and told me that I was not being a good friend. You see, this is the backbone of good friendship. You need good friends who will both encourage you and rebuke you. The scripture tells us that the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. Both are essential in meaningful friendship. Let's take another stab at this. What does good friendship look like? Well, it's encouraging. It's also rebuking. I think a good friend is also someone with whom you can share good news and bad. You can go to them at your highest moment with good news or at your lowest moment with bad news because they have your best interest at heart. That's a good friend. Now, Jonathan shows us this picture of friendship with David. So David's fame is building among the nation, right? When we get to this point, David is on the upswing. He's in a good season. And Jonathan comes alongside and celebrates his conquests. Unlike his father, Saul, Jonathan is not insecure about it. He's David's friend. He thinks it's awesome that David is rising to the top. Now think about that for a moment. If there was anyone in this account who should be insecure and upset about David rising apparently to the throne, who should it have been? Probably Jonathan, even more so than Saul. Jonathan was the heir to the throne. And here he's watching David move up the ranks, and he sees that this guy is going to be king. He's not threatened by him. He's a good friend, and he celebrates this good news with him. Their souls are knit together. Jonathan is also a good friend to David in bad times. When Saul sets out to kill David, 
Well, we're told in the next couple of chapters, this sort of unfolds. The first thing that Saul does is, um, so David wants to marry Saul's daughter. And Michael, M-I-C-H-A-L. And, and Saul says to David, okay, of course, you can go ahead and marry my daughter, but the bride price is going to be that you and your men have to go out, slay a hundred Philistines, and bring me back their foreskins. Kind of weird, but whatever. David goes out with his guys, and he slaughters 200 Philistines and brings back 200, and so he ends up married to Saul's daughter. Saul then tries to put together a plan where uh, Michael, his daughter, will facilitate the murder of David. But Michael actually delivers David, makes sure he doesn't die in that trap. She warns him about this, and he escapes in the night. But then, David and Jonathan find themselves in a situation. And see, here's a picture of Jonathan being a good friend to David and actually sharing not only in the celebration, but actually sharing with him in bad news and in difficult times. So David and Jonathan, they're talking. They realize that Saul has gone off his rocker and he's going to seek to kill and murder David. So they come up with an elaborate plan. You can read about it in chapter 20. I won't go into all the details. But at the end of the day, they come up with a system to out Saul and show that he was actually going to try to kill David so that Jonathan can tell David and then David can escape in the night. Look at chapter 20, verse 41. After this all comes about and Jonathan helps David to get away, they're parting for one last time. Chapter 20, verse 41. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. You see, Jonathan is a good friend to David because he's not only not threatened when David has good news, he stands alongside him and celebrates, but he's a good friend to David in the bad times. He's there to support him and help him. That's what a good friend does. A good friend is someone who will make your joys all the sweeter. And make your difficulties more bearable. That's a good friend. That's what we see in Jonathan and David. A good friend in good times. And an aid in times of trouble. If you fast forward the account, this friendship of David and Jonathan, um, in, in chapter 31, Jonathan dies along with Saul in battle. And so 2 Samuel opens up with, David lamenting the loss of Jonathan, his best friend. And this then gives birth to a difficult season in David's life. This in-between time, he's anointed, but he's not yet king. This mad Saul is bent on his demise. Look at our passage this morning, chapter 18, verses 6 to 11. Verse 6, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath, 
the women came out from all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the woman, the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear. For he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. You see, you see how this is a very difficult season in David's life. The king wants him close, but the king wants him dead. And what did David have to sustain him? Look at verses 12 to 16. But Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Saul is set against David. What does David have as a defense? The Lord. The Lord is with him, it says. And the Lord has given him a friend in Jonathan. Friends, here's the first point of application. If you find yourself in a bind, what you really need is the Lord God. And often, the Lord will give you a good friend. I want us to shift gears here for a moment. We have acknowledged that oftentimes life will bring you circumstances where you need the Lord and where you need a friend. But I want to suggest to you this morning that your deepest need is actually something far greater. What you need is Jesus. Now, throughout this series, we've seen how David himself shows us Jesus. But in today's passage, we're actually going to see Jesus in Jonathan. We're going to see Jesus in Jonathan in at least two ways that I want us to look at right now. Look at chapter 18, verses 2 to 5. And Saul took him that day and would not let him, David, return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped off the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him, set him over all the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servant. First, we see in verse 2 
that David finds himself as a young man separated from his own family and from his own father's household. It's too easy in Scripture to read over some of these details and miss them. Feel how vulnerable that must have been for young David. Saul has separated him out, removing him from his father's household, and forcing him to live there. David is alone and vulnerable. And in verse 3, that's the state that David finds himself in when Jonathan makes a covenant with him. Now, friends, don't miss Jesus in this. When you and I find ourselves in the midst of the enemy's kingdom, God in Jesus makes a covenant with us. It's a covenant that will ensure our protection. See, in this account, David will be safe in Saul's household, not because of his own cleverness or strength. He will be safe in Saul's household because Jonathan made a covenant with him. Well, that's the picture for us as well. We find ourselves in a world filled with devils and demons. And yet God in Jesus Christ has made a covenant with us. Verse 2. Jonathan did it because he loved David as his own soul. And Christian man or woman, in Jesus you have a Jonathan. God has made a covenant to keep you and to protect you. Not because of your own doing, but because of his doing. And so when we look at Jonathan in 1 Samuel, we see Jesus. We behold the champion of our own soul. But how? How does Jonathan protect and shield David? Look at verse 4. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. Here's the picture of Jonathan protecting and making a covenant with David. Jonathan strips himself of everything and gives it to his friend. Even these weapons that he gives to David, those are the very weapons that David will use to crush the Philistines and to win the hearts of God's people. See, David stands there in that moment in Saul's household with clothing and weapons that are not his own, but given to him by his friend Jonathan. Christian man or woman, in this, behold your friend Jesus. This is an incomplete picture for sinners like you and me. Because it shows us the one who was stripped. He stripped himself of his righteousness and wraps us in it. So that when the Father looks at you and me, he no longer sees us as vulnerable and scared and sinful. But he looks at us and he sees Jesus. He sees our friend. And and Jesus is a better friend than Jonathan because he goes even further. Jonathan wraps David in his royal robe. But Jesus, we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
does even more. He takes our sin upon himself and in exchange wraps us with his robe of righteousness. Jonathan gives David his robe and his weapons. And in so doing, Jonathan, who is the heir apparent to the throne, has cloaked David in standing before the king. He gives him his robe. He gives him his weapons. And so he not only has granted his friend David standing, he's granted him the tools that he needs to carry out what God has called him to do. But you can't read this without seeing that Jesus is the friend that we need. He's the one who has given us our standing. He's the one who's granted us his weapons. Jonathan loved David as his own. And in that, we see the love that Jesus Christ has for his brothers and sisters. That's the first way that Jonathan shows us Jesus. The the second way is more of a general point that's lived out over these few chapters that follow. You see, Jonathan is a friend to David and foreshadows Jesus precisely because Jonathan shields and protects David from the wrath of his father. Now, we have to be very careful on this allegorical point, okay? Because allegories are always imperfect. You can push them too far and they fall apart. We have to begin by saying ways in which this allegory is not the same as Jesus and the Father. We have to be very careful and cautious. The first, the first thing to say is that Saul is not like God the Father. Saul is rash and insecure and faithless. God the Father is none of those things. And so the first thing we have to say is that the cross where Jesus takes the wrath of God upon himself that we deserve is not divine, it's not divine child abuse. It's not Jesus bearing the wrath of the Father. On the cross, what we see is God bearing the wrath of God. Okay? So, so when we press into this allegorical point, the first thing I want you to see is that it's, it's not entirely the same because Saul is not like God the Father. But the second thing that I want you to see that makes it different is that David didn't deserve the wrath of Saul. You and I do deserve the wrath of God. We spend our entire life earning it, accruing a debt of sin that warrants death. We live under this burden of guilt that we cannot bear. Our sin warrants the wrath of the Father. It's a debt that we can't pay. It's an account that we can never reckon. And the greatest tragedy of it is most people spend their entire life placating themselves with amusement so that they never have to deal with this truth.
that they're living under the wrath of God. We deserve it. When first you become aware of it, it can lead you to dread and fear. But in the mercy of God, when he makes us aware of our sin and his wrath towards us in that sin, he then presses us into our need for a savior and for a friend. David has a friend in Jonathan who shields him from the wrath of his father. You and I have a friend in Jesus. Jesus, who has absorbed the full wrath of God that is due to you on the cross. When, when you see Jesus on the cross, make no f- mistake, you have a friend and an advocate. He's saving you. He's saving you from guilt and shame and death and hell. Those things are all true. But most pointedly, he's saving you from the wrath of God. Jonathan saves David from the ill-tempered wrath of his father, Saul. But Jesus saves you and me from the just wrath of God that we deserve. And never, never, ever, ever, because we deserve saving. Instead, because Jesus is our friend. I want to close with this last scripture verse. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 9. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What a friend we have in Jesus. Friends, behold your friend. You know, that was my Grandma Glenn's favorite hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our griefs and sins to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. When we read this passage in 1 Samuel, we're reminded that as Christian men and women, We want to find a friend. We want to be a friend. And we want to foster our friendship with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word we catch glimpses even and especially in the Old Testament of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that this morning those who find themselves alone and struggling here, God, I pray that you would grant them a friend, 
I pray also, Lord, that they would come to a more fulsome, robust understanding of the friend that they have in Jesus, a friend who is even better than Jonathan. We pray this to the glory of your name. Amen.